Hey everybody, welcome back to Studio HFL. I'm Larry Powell, your host for this podcast. I'm glad you're back for another interview. I'd like to let you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of my new co-sponsor, Messina Covers. David and Erica design and deliver both high-quality customer service and products, both standard and custom. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And Messina is spelled M-E-S-S-I-N-A-C-O-V-E-R-S. They offer their support through Patreon. Patreon is a funding platform where you can offer your financial support to this podcast, and your help will go towards hosting, production, and marketing fees. There are several tiers of support offered, and you can check out how you'd like to support this podcast at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl, and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also offer support by providing comments and a rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If you'd like to receive news regarding interviews, new guests, access to Studio HFL merchandise, please subscribe to the newsletter by going to www.powellmusic.net and click on the subscribe to newsletter link. And of course, Powell Music, P-O-W-E-L-L-M-U-S-I-C dot net. And now, on with the interview. Welcoming to the uh, Studio HFL podcast today, I'm pleased to welcome John Foster from the Australasian Trumpet Academy. Welcome, John. Hi, it's great to be here, Larry. Thanks for having me. Now, you're here with Vince DiMartino and Robert Jeter as part of the Sound the Trumpet tour that you guys are doing. How many years have you guys been doing this trumpet, Sound the Trumpet event? Yeah, this is the third tour we've done. Uh, every tour has been a little bit different, a little bit of a different part of the country. We're getting to see a lot of the United States, and uh, I can tell you the USA is one of my favorite countries, so I'm always happy to do these tours. Have you done any of these tours overseas? Uh, well, we've done it in Australia, and we've done it here, and uh, we're hoping to take it to, to Europe and the UK uh, very soon. Mm-hmm. Now, you are director of the Australasian Trumpet Academy. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, it's the Australasian Trumpet Academy, and you are correct. I. Uh, started that up about four years ago and uh, I saw a little bit of a need for some special attention in the, uh, well, a special kind of a um, retreat, if you like, or intensive course for uh, trumpet players that they could call their very own and uh, invite many, many different uh, and talented people from abroad and from within Australia to get together and every year we have a uh, a wonderful sort of trumpet fest for together for a week and uh, we all live together eat together uh, study together play together learn from one another and it's just a uh, something I'm very proud of and something I hope lasts for a long time to come you say you perceived a need for something along this line what exactly what kind of needs does this meet for well, a trumpet player yeah well I mean for me I remember back to when I was a student and at that time um, you know, there were some specialized courses or brass academies or those sort of things that were run, which just aren't necessarily being run uh, by the larger institutions. And so I wanted something intensive. It's a little bit based off the, uh, the type of course that uh, Christian Seamstrup and uh, Reinhold Friedrich were running in Italy each year. So that sort of gave me a little bit of the idea for it. But um, in terms of what we, we offer students, uh, it's really anything you can think of. Uh, obviously, we 
we deal with um, the basic needs of brass playing and in particular the uh, things that relate to trumpet playing so you know good breathing sound articulation style all the uh, various aspects of technique and uh, warming up and you know general maintenance and that sort of thing but then uh, we deal with orchestral literature uh, we do a lot of ensemble playing so uh, I look for original music for the trumpet in trumpet ensembles uh, we try and only use very very high quality arrangements if we do use arrangements at all that is uh, we like to promote uh, new pieces for the trumpet so each year I'll feature an Australian composer with a new work for trumpet which uh, I'm really enjoying doing uh, and then we also focus a little bit on early music and uh, which is obviously an area that's very close to my heart so everyone that attends uh, ends up playing Baroque trumpet, whether they've played Baroque trumpet or before or not. Fascinating. And yeah, and both natural trumpet and Baroque trumpet, I should say, we we really uh, do delve into that quite a bit. And by the end of the by the end of the week, they all have to perform in public on the instrument, which is for some people something that had never opened their mind to doing, or or ever even thought they had an ambition to do. But once they've done it, and they see the the validity of the experience, they really really enjoy it and. Uh, for some people it's really uh, opened a new path, new direction for them because they can see the benefits not only of playing early music but what that type of natural trumpet playing does and how it filters over into their modern trumpet playing. And uh, as I said, there's, there's more than that. We do a similar style of thing as well, even if we just touch on it a little bit for the classical players that come, uh, I like to see them all have to at least uh, improvise one chorus of a blues during the week. Uh, Wait. This is diverse. Oh, it's very diverse, and because I think, particularly for where I, uh, how I perceive employment uh, in the future on the trumpet, is there's a definite need to be more and more uh, diverse in what you can uh, perform in prof professionally. I mean, every week you hear of another symphony orchestra closing its doors, but uh, by the same token, then you hear about maybe three other early music groups popping up. And uh, similarly, um, you know, if I can say yes to a commercial gig or I can play the cornetto or I can, you know, play in a musical as well as be a sub in the symphony orchestra, well, you know, it makes me uh, employable and it keeps me busy and it just means I can make a living playing the trumpet, which is really, at the end of the day, we all want to be playing. And if we can find a way to uh, earn a living at it, well, that's all the better for it. So uh, that's really uh, a lot of the thinking behind uh, why we have we cast such a wide net at this course mm -hmm. and we try and have the faculty there that can really uh, facilitate a lot of this thing so that's why uh, on a couple of occasions now we've had Vince DiMartino who is of course probably very very familiar to all your listeners uh, as one of the greatest trumpet players pretty much ever in America. And, and teachers. Our, and teachers. I mean, you know, as an educator, he is just, uh, you know, I can't think of many people who've really achieved those heights or have helped countless thousands of students, as Vince has, and uh, not to mention all the jobs he puts people in, uh, in one way or another. You know, so, yeah, he's been uh, epically a cornerstone of... Uh, the uh, foundation of the uh, ATA uh, in Australia, and uh, and I think it's uh, you know a testament to him as well that uh, 
there's so many other countries, not just the USA, where he's done those things. So um, I know he's been very, uh, very busy in Greece with a, a trumpet academy there as well, and and well, he's just been all over. So uh, that's been great. We've had his son Gabriel Di Martino visit as well yes. on the faculty, who's uh, well. Let's just say the apple hasn't fallen too far from that right. tree, <laughs> and he's he's a wonderful artist. Uh, we've had uh, Giuliano Summerholder. Mm. and uh, who's a wonderful soloist and a wonderful human being. Uh, Rex Richardson, who is, again, a wonderful crossover artist, brings so much yeah, in man. intense... What, what, a, what a great cat, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it, you know, he brings a wonderful uh, point of view with, you know, a wonderful contemporary trumpet uh, repertoire that he plays, and there's so many pieces commissioned for him, but then obviously uh, as a jazz artist is really so well renowned and so well respected and has his own unique approach to that uh, which uh, you know when you're running a trumpet academy having that sort of um, you know exceptional point of view from a completely other place from where I come from I spend the week with my ears glued to every word that these guys say as well because I tend to learn a lot as well so it's a little bit of a guilty pleasure too inviting all these guys to I think that's the trumpet great. academy yeah, well, yeah. I, I have no problem admitting that. And uh, uh, anyway, we've had so many. We had Paul Benniston last year from the London Philharmonic, uh, their principal trumpet. Again, you know, just having someone who's had such a stellar uh, orchestral career and chamber music career with London Brass and um, so many and a brass band background, and uh, hearing that traditional English sound on someone who plays at such an unbelievably high level. Uh, you know, once again, that's something that Australian students and, well, not just Australian students, but we also get students from abroad visiting, uh, they wouldn't hear every day. And uh, so if I can get these guys to come halfway around the world, uh, you know, I'm never sorry for doing it. Because you know, it's, it's one thing to uh, open YouTube and to put these names in that you've mentioned and to find videos or audio recordings that have been posted there and listen to them. It's quite another thing to experience these people firsthand during an academy such as yours. That's what great value you're providing. And, and I listen to the diversity of the names that you've, you've got here. And then even including yourself as the early music specialist in this. Am I correct in, in, yeah. in saying that? It, it's just things, I, I think it's like uh, spending a week at Disney World for a trumpet player where you get such a wide variety of instruction, uh, such depth of experience not just that these are great players and mm. teachers, but they all have such uh, varied experiences, both uh, inside of a group and in, in the teaching studio. Well, that's right. And I mean, I don't just limit myself with the, uh, with the task of teaching the early music. I mean, this year we had Gabriella Cassone from Italy, mm. uh, of course, is a wonderful Baroque trumpet player and keyed trumpet player. Uh, so we try and cover as many uh, different instruments as well that have been important in the development of where we find ourselves today with the modern instruments. So uh, if you want to come to the ATA and you only want to play cornetto, well, we can we no. can do that. If you want to come and only play Baroque trumpet, that's fine. But, uh, you know, if you want to come and you only want to play uh, the Berio Sequenza a week, I have no problem with that either. But <laughs> if you want to come and have a really, really holistic uh, trumpet playing experience then we're definitely the place for, for you and we're very inclusive and we also you know there's no minimum requirement of standard to come along. That was going to be one of my questions because everything you've been talking about to this point 
leads me to think that uh, you would have to be performing at a, a minimum level to be part of this or to have now I, I wouldn't know that a beginner necessarily would well you be know in the right spot for this would they I, I think I think if um, if someone was uh, of, of a you know fairly beginnerish level or, or you know early on in their journey playing the trumpet I, I still think there'd be a place for them there because um, as I said like We've got lots of time. Well, we don't let we have a, we cap the the number of people who are permitted to come on the mm. academy each year. Because and what is that number? Well, we well it's usually around twenty. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, I've gone a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. uh, people people ask me really nicely and smile nicely. I, <laughs> I you know I I'm not made of stone. I'll definitely let them come. But um, yeah, overall, um, you know, I just want people who want to be there come. I always say like, if you have a thirst for knowledge. And you have an attitude where you want to improve, then then you're absolutely welcome. And you know, and I think we can all learn off everyone. I mean, my one of my great philosophies is that I treat myself like a beginner every day. Mm. And so sometimes by having someone who's of a very uh, modest level or just beginning their journey on the trumpet, uh, you know, we can all have our eyes opened again and remember what that's like and get things back to a certain level of simplicity with our playing. That's super important. <coughs> And so on that level, I think, um, you know, everyone wins. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before I forget, I want to ask, uh, this takes place in Queensland, is that correct? That's right. It's, uh, it takes place in uh, the closest major city really is Brisbane, uh, which is the capital of Queensland. And then just to the south of that is another city called the Gold Coast. And it's in the hinterland of the Gold Coast in a place called the Numanbar Valley. and. Um, it, it really is one of the most unbelievably beautiful places in the world. It's set amongst virgin rainforest with little streams running through everywhere. We have glowworm caves that we go and visit <laughs> and waterfalls and it is just incredibly beautiful there. It's a visceral experience. You go it, not just for trumpet. Oh no, yeah. This really is nice what this was always part of my idea that we would have this academy and it would be a real retreat. So you were completely uh, cut off, in a sense, from the day-to-day -day and taken out of the square you live in. And as well as being immersed in uh, music making and trumpet environment, you actually get this kind of Shangri-La experience, mm. which um, sends everyone home very, very happy every time. I'm sitting here thinking, uh, I hope next year's not full because I'm, I'm thinking I might want to explore uh, being a part of the next one, which would happen at what time of year? Are they regularly? Yeah, they're scheduled? regularly. Uh, it's this next year is uh, it's 2019. It's the 24th to the 29th of September. And uh, very pleased to announce that uh, one of our guest artists will be Reinhold Friedrich, who wow. is, of course, of in stellar international fame and mm -hmm. winner of the Munich ARD competition in 1986 and is the professor of trumpet at the Karlsruhe uh, Hochschule and is just all around uh, great artist and musician and very very proud to call him my friend and it's uh, it's been a few years in the making to actually get him to make the trip to Australia but uh, we're so excited to have him come and uh, be one of our featured guest artists in 2019. Congratulations, that's terrific. You know, getting to work with artists, and, and by the way, the way I, I see you light up when you mention his name, 
is truthfully the way I light up when I knew that you and, and Vinny were going to be coming here for Sound the Trumpet. Is I hold you guys in such high regard uh, because you, you hold yourselves to a standard, I think, that uh, as players and teachers, we should all aspire to. And, and you're not selfish with this either. I mean, the reason you do these Sound the Trumpet tours and the reason you're doing this Trumpet Academy is not to keep music to yourself. It's like you're sharing as much as you possibly can in performance and in education. Yeah, it's very important to me, and it's something that um, through spending a lot of time with, with Vince DiMartino, that trumpet's uh, a lot more fun when you're giving back. <laughs> and and uh, it, it's a team sport, as I said earlier, and it's something that is enhanced immeasurably when shared. And my life has been uh, completely has completely benefited as a result of all the things that I've given back. So actually, you know, we say it's a you know, it's, you've, you've mentioned it's unselfish of us to, to do these things, but actually we do, we do benefit because, you know, for me, I, I get a lot out of, uh, you know, seeing uh, the results of other people, um, you know, coming along and improving their playing because inevitably, um, you know, the better other people get on the trumpet, students and the more they learn and things like that um, it just in, it in increases the experience for everyone around them and then it becomes infectious and before you know it you know because uh, we love the instrument so that's really at the base of it all is a love of the instrument and uh, trying to sh you know have that love of the instrument rub off on other people yeah, we seem to love a very fickle instrument, don't we? <laughs> Something that doesn't always treat us uh, the way we wish we would. And, you know, for someone like yourself who goes between the modern and the early music instruments rather seamlessly, um, it's like you've, uh, well, not to dance on too many uh, uh, things here, but I'm thinking it's like you're dating a lot of girls who, if they found out about the other one, uh, you'd be in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought of it that way, but uh, well, you know what I mean. Because there yeah. are people who are uh, who are just boy. If you're in early music, you only play early music. Your focus is right there. Or if you are a jazzer, that's where your focus is. You know, you mm -hmm. don't you don't feel like you can you can step out into anything else because those disciplines do individually require a lot of attention. For me, um, I. I mainly, if we're talking tin tacks in terms of technique, I probably spend more time practicing natural trumpet than any mm. other instrument. Uh, you know, I, I, I say that based on, depends on what I have coming up, of course. Uh, but on the day-to-day -day thing, you know, if I have to spend a lot of time on one instrument, that would probably be it because I find that set of skills is universally, uh, you know, transferable to the other instruments mm. to a large degree. Uh, if, say, I have something orchestral coming up, um, you know, sure, I'll get out my C trumpet and, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe work just a little bit on a different style of articulation and, and uh, you know, really making sure that I've got the style exactly where I want it and the response and, you know, just taking care of business, as it were, um, with those sort of things and, you know, obviously looking at the music and all those things. But, um, yeah, in terms of the day-to-day -day thing, you know, the natural trumpet really is the thing that uh, really around, I'd say around age, probably around 21, transformed my playing a lot. Mm. 
I only really seriously started practicing a lot on the Baroque trumpet at, at about age 20 when I started studying with Michael Laird and Mark Bennett in, in England. And, um, and I just loved the way those guys played. I mean, you know, Michael had this sound. I mean, it's a, it's a legendary sound. People, you know, you know um, still you know, regard him as one of the greatest trumpet sounds in England, you know. Mm -hmm. And um, it, if you were in a lesson with it, you couldn't help but play better yourself just from hearing it. He, didn't, he had to say very little most of the time because... Such a different concept of sound, though, between the modern trumpet and the natural trumpet. There, there is, uh, but you can, I think, once, once you've had at least one point in your life where you've been completely immersed in, in only doing the early music stuff for a little while, then you can hear the, the person's personality through the playing. Mm -hmm on either instrument and you'll be able to mm -hmm. really get a sense of that and that's once you understand how to make the the differences in going between the instruments it really does become a lot easier mm -hmm. uh, what think most people have the problem or the difficulty in understanding when they're going between modern and old instruments is really the the amount of air they use when they play and the speed of air that they use when they play so generally, they overblow the early instruments a great deal, and uh, they try they try and um, play with sort of too big of a sound in the high register. Mm. So, I mean, the Baroque trumpet. Uh, when you think about those guys, and you think about the other instruments they were performing with, they were w working around other string players. Uh, they would hear maybe. Um, I mean, it was starting to fade into antiquity, but they would, uh, a few of them uh, actually, you know, would have heard cornettos being played, mm -hmm. uh, but definitely oboes and recorders mm -hmm. and these kind of things. So sonically, you know, in their soundscape that they were, or their concept of sound, those were the other instruments in their world. It wasn't sort of other, you know, definitely wasn't any kind of uh, mm -hmm. Bach 229-25H sound or modern trombones or, mm -hmm. you know, orchestral loud instruments. It was all in a, in a little tiny bubble in their court, you know. You know, years ago, uh, I did this workshop in Bloomington, Indiana, where I spent a week with uh, seven other uh, people who were, we, we started with a flat sheet of brass and ended the week with a uh, working model of a D trumpet. And help me remember what year. This is an Ehi Ehi model or? No, it looks like a handline. Handline. Trumpet. So, so you know, I 1600s, think it's late 1600s. So 1580, something like that. Okay. So, you know, having constructed this trumpet and to start to play it, the first thing that really did for me was it informed me about the dynamics that were marked for Beethoven and Haydn and Mozart and to think because the timbre is so different than the modern trumpet. We, you talk about overblowing, but I'm thinking even on the modern trumpet, I think we play so much louder than the composer ever intended. Well, because the sound he would have been used to, right, is that beautiful, uh, colorful, rich, dark sound that the, the natural trumpet or the broke trumpet can make. Yeah, well, it's interesting because when we really think about it, especially if you're talking about Beethoven, 
uh, you know, Beethoven's way, way into the decline of the natural trumpet and the or the baroque trumpet. So uh, he, but know, they're still valveless. They're still valveless. Right. But you see, okay, the uh, the trumpet guilds really, by the time it, by the late oh, seventeen sixties, I mean it was sort of done. Okay, so really, you know, by the time we get into Mozart, Haydn, uh, the predecessors to Beethoven, uh, you know, the, the style of music had changed from a polyphonic kind of layering to uh, to a homophonic rhythmic sort of job for the trumpets, where we were essentially just extra timpani players. Right, glorified timpani players. That's <laughs> it. That's it. Um, so, on the one hand, you could look at it. We've gone from a melodic instrument to sort of a more rhythmic role mm-hmm. um, and as the major composers of the Baroque stopped writing for the trumpet in these melodic roles mm-hmm. um, and we ended up playing these rhythmic roles the sound concept and the style of playing and also the secrets around Clarino playing and that beautiful mm-hmm. artful uh, style of trumpet playing mm-hmm. I think went along with it so actually the style of trumpet playing got a little bit more sort of uh, rat-a-tat-tat. Mm. Um, and yeah, so at the last sort of tiny last gasp you hear is in Beethoven 9 when we get mm. a, an actual melody. Um, well, I just played Beethoven 5 last weekend. And of course, in the second movement, we've got this wonderful beam, da 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 da. And then, of course, we get the big tune in the fourth movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we open the movement, and then, boy, we, we help bring that movement and the entire symphony, of course, to a close, melodically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was not tempted to play it without pushing any valves down, but, you know, that still was in the back of my mind, is thinking, uh, boy, in a, in a modern orchestra, the, this trumpet could just bury the entire orchestra. Oh, yeah. And to think, was that really the role of the trumpet back as Beethoven was hearing it? Well, no, because, well, you say Beethoven's hearing it, that's a little well, bit yes, of an oxymoron. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right, well, you know what I mean. Yeah. He, he, but even in his mind, yes. hearing... Well, I mean, the, the orchestra was much smaller, of course, as well. Oh, right, you and know, a fraction of the strings, and yeah. maybe the same wind complement, but yeah. certainly on the yeah, strings. Yeah, so straight away, you know, the texture, all that sort of thing different. So, no, I mean, the trumpets would not have been overly overt, I don't think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, but having said that, I mean... Still, you know, fortissimo means fortissimo mm-hmm. in the appropriate moments. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, I never, when it comes to the matters of historical accuracy, I get nervous when people say, I know. You know, um, I always prefer to err on the side of caution and say, well, based on um, practical experience or based on research that I've been able to come across. Mm-hmm. You know about this and and then reference it, but um, you know I still think the the human conditions is what it is, and trumpet players being trumpeted players, there would be times when you know they'd let loose and and oh, you know uh, get excited about the music just like we do, you know and uh, you know but of course the times are different as well. So you know if we're in a time where there's sort of um, more strict adherences to say, in, you know, we're talking baroque times, if we're strict adherences to uh, sacred music mm-hmm. and you know rules around that and 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 you know having different places you perform in actually having very different rules around mm-hmm. it um, then all those factors have to be considered so um, 
Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a, a big distinction between indoor and outdoor music, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, which would totally dictate dynamics and things like that. So. You, you mentioned something a second ago about how somebody, would, how somebody would say, oh, I know. And I think, you know, if we want to emulate Louis Armstrong or Maynard Ferguson or Clifford Brown or Clark Terry, anybody, we've got recordings, video and audio recordings. That's and right. we can say to ourselves, well, yes, I do know how that sounds. However, when you start to talk about uh, Baroque trumpet, I'm almost to the point where I'm actually going to say Baroque, the way uh, <laughs> the way you you say it. Uh, we don't have the luxury of those recordings to reference to think how's that. And I, I understand uh, it's a your best educated guess. Well, I mean, you know, there is enough rhetoric around a lot of the performance practice and things like that. So. You know, in a lot of the, the um, French Baroque music, we know, that, you know, the dance forms of the music. And so based on, say, even uh, what what the dance steps of these Baroque dancers are or whatever, we get a good sense of what the tempos were and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's, there's good ways, forensic ways of solving the puzzle around those sort of things. I mean, Beethoven, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, was really one of the first people to add metronome markings to some of his music. Yes. So, you know, that's helpful. Um, well, and, and by the way, there's a wonderful episode on a, another podcast, a Radio Lab podcast, and it's entitled Speedy Beat. So I'm mentioning that in case you or, or listeners to this want to reference that, but it talks about uh, the invention of the metronome, how it was introduced to Beethoven, and how he may or may not have gone back and corrected some of the markings he had previously placed into his scores. I don't think that was uncommon either, you know, uh, for people, for these composers to, you know, go back over things mm -hmm. and, and kind of, uh, you know. Wouldn't we be surprised if we were to hear either with a tempo, uh, if Beethoven were to come back and say, you've got all my tempos wrong, you've got all my dynamics wrong. Of course, we could say this for any composer. Um, and they made changes and then the audiences would be upset because they've come to expect things to be played a certain way and, yeah. to, and to be heard a certain way. Uh, but uh, kind of, it, It's kind of a little bit like uh, George Lucas going back and changing the original Star Wars movies. <laughs> right. I was very upset by that. <laughs> right, it's heresy. <laughs> it's heresy. Yeah, you can't do that, you know. So, you know, this the whole early music thing fascinates me and, and yesterday in a master class, uh, I had asked a question about the keyed bugle and was corrected. Of course, it was keyed trumpet. Uh, but what then followed was to me a demonstration of this immense amount of knowledge and experience that you have in early music. And I was just fascinated by this. And I, I know enough to pass on to my own students the importance of the Haydn, the Hummel, the Neruda, those concerti, and the evolution of the trumpet through that period. Uh, but I to hear somebody like you really talk about it is, again, it's just fascinating because I feel like I'm getting the information from, and way beyond Wikipedia, right? Way beyond Googling <laughs> this. Because you, you get a sense in listening to you of what's really important about these things, uh, where our focus should be, uh, even as we try to attempt to play the Haydn on modern instruments not even period instruments, but to play them on modern instruments. We can still be informed about, uh, for instance, are, are 
ability to go to the from the five to the one with such an assertive, aggressive nature mm. now was not necessarily the case. In well, Renaissance well, I mean, the great period. one on on key trumpet, you know, just immediately forensically, you you get a very good sense of how ornaments had to have been, mm. uh, or you know, the <laughs> likelihood would have been right. because keys raise the pitch, and so if you're ornamenting from the note and then raising a key, it is you know it is a lot uh, makes a lot more sense because then the pitch goes up so you know whereas a lot of people you know on the modern valve trouble will start on the upper note you know that's not necessarily uh, you know how it may have been done so mm -hmm. you know just even just on a forensic level by playing these instruments we immediately have answered a, a lot of questions mm -hmm. for trumpet players one of the, the greatest ones I ever uh, noticed was uh, in the second movement of the Hummel. Now, uh, you know, of course, it's in the, the, the British Library, the original score mm. of the Hummel Trumpet Concerto. It's in the back of uh, some piano works. And it was um, originally rediscovered by a trumpet player in Brisbane, actually, mm. who was a, a former uh, American who'd settled in Brisbane uh, by the name of Merrill Debsky. And Merrill Debsky found the Hummel Concerto and brought it back to. Uh, light for us. Thank you, Meryl. And uh, I actually had a lesson with him once, by the way, but that's by the by. But it's nice to... We may know, come back to that later. Yeah, nice to have uh, met him. Anyway, and uh, I went one day myself and uh, a couple of people. Um, David Blackadder was with me. Uh, he just played at the ro recent Royal Wedding. Mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of the listeners would have seen that. Mm -hmm. um, and we had the original score of the Hummel open there. And the second movement in the opening bars, there's a trill mm -hmm. that we were aware of. And well, is it a trill? Or? And this is the question, there's a squiggly line. Mm -hmm. And literally on when you look at the original manuscript for the Hummel, every single trill has this same wavy line. The only difference with this wavy line is it doesn't have the letters TR written at the mm -hmm. beginning of it. So my thinking is this and I, I'm sure some people will share this view, he just simply forgot to write the TR on the front of that squiggly line. And if you had, for the first time in Vienna, in front of a, an audience, the ability to trill from a written C to a C sharp on a trill on this brand new instrument that would have shocked them, as well as worked beautifully harmonically in the piece and in the mood and in the style, don't you think you would have used that? But here's, here's the kicker. So then everything in the phrase, da da dee da 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 Every single one of those notes in that first phrase, as well as the squiggly line long note, uses the same key, uses one key for that whole first section. No kidding. So there you go. Uh, so for, in, for my money, that's performer and, mm -hmm. and that's, that's mm -hmm. Anton Weidinger and Hummel working together mm -hmm. and coming up with this, you know, really conspiring together to, to write this piece. And when you look at the solo part of the Hummel, there's three distinct, <coughs> there's three distinct uh, versions of the solo part. Uh, there's one that's written in... Hummel's hand in black ink, which is a different 
darkness of ink to the rest of the orchestral accompaniment, to me, which says that obviously the solo part was penned in after you know he you know workshopped the solo part for a while, and then there's also clearly a red pen or a red pencil and a green pencil mm-hmm. for various different uh, corrections mm-hmm. and different actually some different alternate versions, and um, I think and, and these were Hummels, not an editorial. Well, we, we don't know if they're Hummels or they're Weidingers, but they're, they're not editorial. No, this is in the original. Um, and I think Ed Tarr is actually the only one who's recorded the alternate version. So that's always interesting to listen to as well. Mm-hmm. And some of them are quite nice, actually. Uh, and then as a, uh, an appendix at the back, there's actually some bassoon parts which are added about a year later. Mm. So it was quite a, obviously quite a popular piece. And of course, the other thing that people forget about the Hummel is it actually started as a trio. It actually started for a trio for trumpet, violin, and and uh, forte piano. So it only got expanded to a full concerto after it had already been a sort of parlor piece mm-hmm. for Weidinger. Welcome to the middle of the episode. Just a reminder that this podcast is brought to you with the support of Messina Covers. They offer some standard and custom designs of trumpet bags, mouthpiece pouches, and more. And their customer service is excellent. Be sure to check them out at www.messinacovers.net. And now, back to the interview. Let's go back to the trill, the marking for the trill. Of course, one of the things that I had heard, of course, and and please correct me if I'm wrong on this, but even through the Renaissance and early Baroque, the trill was considered, uh, uh, sorry, not the trill, the vibrato was considered more ornamental. And so what I had heard is that that squiggly line could have simply meant uh, a certain type of vibrato rather than an actual physical trill oscillating between two notes, whether chromatically or diatonically, but it could have been straight tone gradually waving into a vibrato. Yeah, well, I mean, as, as I said, the, the, the strongest thing that I can tell from looking at the original manuscript is that that trill, or that supposed trill, it looks like every other trill on the piece mm-hmm. except for those letters. So that's sort of the, the obvious choice. I understand what you're saying. The only thing problem I have with that in this is very late classical, almost starting to f- feel romantic. And I don't know where else that uh, is really applied. Well, definitely not anywhere else in that piece. But mm-hmm. uh, just from that exact sort of era, I don't know any other composers that were employing that technique as such, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I don't, I certainly... Well, see, I think this is where the benefit of research really... Yeah, I would need to look into in. that further to see if yeah, that so was that, a... That we don't get this as hearsay from uh, maybe somebody who's a non-trumpet player. Right. Uh, maybe uh, maybe it had been a vocal technique. Well, I mean, certainly, I mean, the earlier stuff uh, in the early Baroque and Renaissance, we had effects where they were ornaments on the same note, which essentially, which is called trillo, and trillo is sort of a beating half on the same note hmm. uh, where they actually are doing a um, sort of a, a glottal kind of mm-hmm. a reproduction of the same note rhythmically on the same note and sort of speeding up the rhythm through the note as they go and then smoothing out at the other end. If you listen to good Renaissance singing, if you listen to some nice, you know, Monteverdi or uh, mm-hmm. something like that, you'll hear it used very effectively. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and of course, the trumpet players had to do that too. If we look at stuff uh, in the early 17th century with Girolamo Fantini, 
is certainly his trills are certainly in the same fashion. So yeah, there's there's a little bit of that, but um, they were just marked trill, mm -hmm. and uh, we just know through uh, following reading the treatise and the style that uh, and copying the singers that we we do it that way. <laughs> do you uh, are you a purist when it comes to playing these period pieces? Even if we do it on a modern trumpet, do you try to just let, uh, let's say you have a student who brings these in mm. and says, I would love to play these, will you help me? Yeah. Tell me your approach to this. What, what are your expectations and what do you allow to happen? Sure. Uh, really, I, I, I wouldn't say, say that I'm a purist. I like to definitely use whatever knowledge I have about the style to influence the performance. Um, so I try and use the historical performance practice on whatever instrument it is. Um, to obviously, in interpreting, you know, lengths of notes and the way to phrase things, and uh, just you know, just general musicianship around the style. That's you know, absolutely needs to filter through. Um, and I mean, obviously, for the for trumpet players uh, playing baroque music, you mostly hear that on the piccolo trumpet, and you know. One thing I don't see enough of, actually, is people making more of an effort to try and uh, get more historically accurate on that instrument, because it is possible. If we look at the the sounding length of the instrument, you know, it's probably closer to sort of a, you know, a cornetto in length than it is to a baroque trumpet. It's a quarter of the length of an original baroque trumpet, um, but you know, the mouthpiece is roughly the same size, and um, you know, there's and the tessitura is the same and all those sort of things. So, you know, we're the instrument really. So whatever the sound happens, happens to come from, we can't really blame the instrument as to what result we're getting. Yes, we can. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm being funny. Yeah, and I've certainly noticed um, a large difference in my own playing over the years. Uh, when, when I was 25, I got my first sort of big break with a uh, solo record with ABC Classics uh, in Australia to re record a whole bunch of piccolo trumpet stuff. Mm. And, you know, and growing up, uh, I mean, when I was 13, I just wanted to play like Maurice Andre. I thought he was just the greatest, and I still do think he was just the greatest, most beautiful trumpet player I'd ever heard. And, you know, that sound was, uh, from, from the first moment of the first CD I ever put on, or record, I think it was then, um, it would just you know, seared on my brain. And uh, anyway, when I recorded this album, you know, it was still uh, a while ago now, and uh, I still thought that was more or less the way I wanted to sound on that instrument, you know, to, to a large degree. I mean, obviously you're not gonna sound exactly like Maurice mm -hmm. Andre, but uh, with a slightly more romantic edge to Baroque interpretation, because, uh, you know, that was the way I was sort of taught to play. Uh, by my teachers who were, were of the age where Maurice Andre was in his prime. And so that was, you know, their point of reference and understanding and gradually things just start to uh, transform as generationally as we get other influences. And so um, for me around that time, luckily I'd been to England already, so I'd heard a very different style of playing um, and was starting to become very, very, you know, interested in Baroque playing and things like that. So even then, I started to feel, you know, the modern trumpet and the, particularly the piccolo trumpet playing Baroque repertoire was on a little bit of a journey away from where it had come. Mm -hmm. 
let's take a little bit of, of a departure from the early music for, uh, for a second. Uh, I'd like to go back just a little bit. We don't have to go back to the beginning, uh, but we could. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, teachers that you've had over the years and what their focus had been, uh, what you experienced in their studios and how that affected your, your playing, your personal growth as a musician. Sure, I only had a few sort of real main teachers um, over the years. When I started, when I really started, uh, I was very, very fortunate to meet uh, a lovely bandsman by the name of uh, James Hardington, who was sort of taught in my local area in Brisbane. And, and um, I say fortunately, he was a sort of retired army bandsman. He's a very good euphonium player and quite a nice trombone player. Mm -hmm. uh, but he sort of taken up a bit of flugel on himself and still taught full time. But you know, even in his 60s, he was always interested in finding out better ways to teach his students. So he was off taking lessons himself with Mike Mulcahy and these sort of guys, just to make sure he was still relevant, teaching the right things. And really for me, he was, he had a great appreciation and love of music. So all I needed, I mean, I had no, no, uh, no shortage of enthusiasm for the trumpet. The second I got the trumpet, I just thought this was the best thing ever. And, um, and strangely, you know, things like, you know, the buzzing and the blowing didn't seem to worry me too much. Um, so he just sort of let me go on my own to, to play whatever pieces I wanted to play, whatever. And he'd just be there to gently steer. There was never any sort of strict regimented kind of, um, you know, I say that when it was needed, he would he sure. would he would step in to correct things, and uh, and he, I just remember have wonderful memories of just playing these lovely pieces, and he'd play piano in the studio, and mm. I'd be maybe 10, 11 years old, and wow. him accompanying me, and you know, we had we actually had a he was a very very lovely patient guy, and he was really like your favorite granddad, <laughs> and so you'd look forward to your lessons, mm -hmm. and he was very. You know, had a good sense of humor, and strangely enough, I ended up in the Sydney Symphony, and one of his other students from my suburb ended up, uh, trombone player, ended up in the Sydney Symphony. So we had two students, you know, in Fantastic. both in the in the in the top orchestra in the country. So, you know, he um, he must have been doing something right, and I didn't stay with him that long. Probably only about three years. I think I was about eleven, and there was a a. Uh, like a junior program, like a high school program at the local conservatorium. And uh, I must have been about year seven, so I auditioned for that and got a place for the next year. And very luckily for me, uh, the Israel Philharmonic had been touring the previous year and one of their trumpet players had decided to take a job as trumpet professor in Brisbane at the Queensland Conservatorium. So when I turned up, I was 12 years old. Uh, I think he was 35, we're talking about uh, Yoram Levy, and um, he'd never taught a 12-year-old, and <laughs> I'd certainly never learned off anyone from the Israel Philharmonic, mm -hmm. and, uh, but no, he was wonderful, and straight away, you know, once again, he was a really patient guy, very smart guy, very smart teacher, Him, he himself, he'd come very much through a sort of Chicago, uh, sort of a heyday of the Chicago mm -hmm. School of Brass Playing. So he was a Chickowitz student. Direct uh, Chickowitz student. Direct Chickowitz yes. student, yeah. He'd done his masters with uh, Chickowitz in Northwestern. And uh, 
He'd done his undergrad at, at uh, McGill with, uh, with James Thompson. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you really, you know, you couldn't have asked for two better teachers right there. Mm -hmm. And then he'd gone back and done a, a sabbatical for a year with Herseth uh, in the 80s. And he, you know, he's also taking regular lessons with Arnold Jacobs and, you know, everyone. Um, I think he was also uh, learned off Vince Penzarella. Uh, he'd, he'd do summer courses with Guy Touvron. You know, so he had a lot of really great um, experiences himself. He'd, he'd had to go back to uh, Israel as well and do compulsory national service and all that sort of stuff in the army. And, and uh, anyway, ended up, <coughs> eventually ended up in the Israel Philharmonic under Zubin Mehta and toured the world for about 10 years and then uh, departed into Brisbane. And we met, I was 12, and uh, we sort of hit it off really. I mean, because I couldn't, I was a sponge, I couldn't get enough information. And luckily for me, a sleepy little town in Queensland, Australia, you know, was at least someone who was of the high enough caliber and worldly enough and knew enough people and had played enough to sort of uh, keep feeding me the level and the information I needed. So uh, by the time I was 15, I was already playing professionally with the symphony orchestras in, uh, in Queensland and, and standing at the front of them playing concertos and do you see either of their teaching styles coming through now in, in your own studio? Oh, certainly. Uh, particularly, uh, I mean, w with Yoram, uh, he had a wonderful, he has, he's still a wonderful player and a wonderful teacher. Uh, he has a wonderful way of assessing people very quickly and be able to give them exactly the right amounts of information that they need. Mm -hmm. So he never gives anyone sort of in information indigestion, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yes. And so, uh, and, he, and he understands the physiology, the physiology uh, side of playing so much, like Ella Jacobs. Mm -hmm. And so he's able to, particularly in sort of a one-off lesson or a masterclass situation, he can really improve people very rapidly. And for me, Sometimes the simplest piece of advice is all people need to hear. And, you know, it's not that you're actually imparting any incredible wisdom on them. Maybe you're just undoing something that is crippling them a bit. Or, you know, you're just, uh, you're taking away the analytical side of, of what they're trying to do, which is freeze them up to let things happen in a more natural way. So that's something that I think I learned from him. And, and something that I think has been really useful in my teaching, um, and it, you know, and he was, he was, I must say, Yoram's like, he's got that wonderful, uh, incredibly developed sense of articulation, like you, you can imagine that Herseth had. Uh, so for me, um, I have a very strong emphasis on articulation in my teaching, mm -hmm. and that's certainly been inherited through that. Mm -hmm. Did they play a lot in lessons? Did they model things for you, or was it more of a verbal, analytical uh, I mean, with Yoram, with early on, especially when I was young, yes, he'd play a lot. Uh, it was very much osmosis and monkey see, monkey do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, you know, and that works for you? That worked for me. Yes. And, uh, I mean, not too much, you know, there was always, you know, but I never came out of lessons feeling tired, no. Mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, and plus, I just loved hearing him play because he was a great player. So, you know, um, 
you know, he, you know, really, and he was a great student of different characteristics of trumpet playing. You know, if he wanted something to sound Russian, he could do it. If he wanted something to sound right. particularly French school, he could do it. And he, could, he had all these nationalistic styles that he could really produce at will and or different style genres he could mm. produce at will. And that's another thing that stood me in very good stead as well, is that I always had a very early on, a very strong concept of what physically and mentally needed to happen to change, you know, like you said, fairly seamlessly between these styles. Mm. So now let's, let's go back a little bit further because uh, I can understand maybe where your enthusiasm, your drive for the trumpet had come from. But you had to start somewhere, uh, either being surrounded by people in your family who were musicians, or they made sure that you were exposed to great live music or recordings, uh, or starting you on violin or piano prior to trumpet. Um, tell me how you actually got to the point where when you picked up the trumpet, uh, what, what were things like at that point? Okay, well, uh, yeah, I. You know, neither of my parents were musicians, um, or I, yeah, no, not to any extent really. Um, I had a very supportive mother, and so she was sure that my older sister and I both had music lessons. Mm -hmm. So we both played piano, and then my sister started playing flute and recorder, mm -hmm. and I played violin. And uh, after a couple of years of violin, I really didn't want to continue because I was like a scrawny little kid. I was all bones and things sticking out everywhere, so the violin used to just cut into me, and uh, I didn't have the sort of padding on the collarbones for it. So, um, yeah, I didn't enjoy that. So, and then uh, I did percussion for a while. I actually did percussion for a long time, but wow. uh, about six years. But um, yeah, the trumpet just came up at school one day, and uh, it was really like, okay, you look like you could hold this. <laughs> you know, come now, now, was it a trumpet or a cornet? It was a trumpet, yeah, and uh, and that was where I met uh, James Hardington for the first time in mm -hmm. school, and uh, I was very fortunate because they were all group lessons in school, mm -hmm. and after the first group lesson, he said, "I'm going to give you a private lesson every week." So of his own volition, he already took me aside, and and so I progressed very rapidly as a result of that, and um, I actually sort of came back. There's a little story. You know, my mother, um, she'd been at like a parent-teacher night, and this was about a week after I got the trumpet. And uh, one of the music teachers came and said, oh, you must be Mrs. Foster, the, the mother of that boy that's doing so well on the trumpet. And my mother said, no, you must be mistaken. My son's only had the trumpet at home for a week. Oh, yeah, no, no, that's him, yes. No, he's going wonderfully well, you know. And he's already finished all this stuff and plays it. And anyway... My mum didn't say anything, but when we got home, I was in big trouble. In trouble? What have you been telling these teachers? You've been lying to these teachers. What have you been telling them that you can do all this stuff for on the trumpet? You, you know, you've only had that thing a few days and all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> I said, I'm not lying. And I challenged her. And she said, right, you come here. So she dragged me sort of into the bedroom and got the trumpet out of the case. And she was very fierce. She was... Uh, not to be trifled with, and she grabbed this music out and very disdainfully kind of opened it at a page. Right, play that. Played it. Opened another page. Right, play that. Played it. Or went to, right, play that. And she goes, oh, 
I see. You can't all play this whole book. <laughs> I, I apologize. Just <laughs> to me, just the way my brain worked, I mean, I'd already played yeah. violin and piano and, yeah. and stuff, so I could read music, and it only had three buttons. Right? Oh my gosh, how many times have we heard that over our, our lives? That uh, and there was How only, hard could it be, right? Yeah, well, that's right. And of course, those early books, you know, that you, you barely touched the third valve. <laughs> like, right? Or even going to, uh, or, anywhere below low C. Yeah. Right? That's right. So that that wasn't much of a reach, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I there's such great value to me in having uh, whether it's piano or trumpet, uh, sorry, piano or violin or vocal experiences before you pick up the trumpet because to learn, well, to learn any instrument at the same time you're learning to read music is like learning to speak two languages simultaneously. That's right. Yeah. And I see where, uh, boy, having that piano and violin experience. And I was always in choir. Freed you up. And then so the vocal experience. But that freed you up to once you actually picked up the instrument, you didn't have to have that, your attention diverted, or divided, rather. No. And so you really could focus on you know, putting your energy into creating those sounds. And it, it doesn't surprise me that uh, after that first week, you know, the story you just told, that, that you sounded the way you did. Yeah, I mean, it was never a, it was never a chore. It was never something that, like, it was exciting every time you pick up the trumpet. Even I can remember, like, it wasn't a toy, but it was, it was kind of serious. But it was, it was something that I really looked forward to all the time. And so even then, I used to practice. Well, I'd play every day for sure. But even at sort of ten, you know, I'd practice at least an hour a day. So what's around you in? Uh in uh, Brisbane, where what live experiences, live music experiences did you have where you could go and listen to great trumpet players? Well, nothing at that stage. Uh, we had, prior to that, I think in my year one class, the brother of my school teacher came to our class. So I think I was about five mm -hmm. years old. And I remember he played saxophone, trumpet, clarinet, and flute, and he could play all these instruments. And I came home that day, and I told my mother, uh, and she quotes it, she said, I said, Mom, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And she says, oh, what's that? And I said, I don't know what it's called. And she said, oh, well, can you describe it? And I said, well, you played this instrument, this instrument. She said, oh, you mean a musician? I said, that's it. That's what I want to be. So I must have been very stubborn or something, or or boring or single-minded because <laughs> nothing's changed. Um, but uh, no, I didn't, the, the first real trumpeting influence, apart from just having uh, lessons, mm -hmm. you know, and even then it was like he'd rarely just occasionally starting to get out the flugelhorn a little bit because uh, he was really a euphonium player and a trombonist. Mm -hmm. um, I went to the big performing arts center in town on my birthday. Uh, my father had bought me tickets to go and see James Morrison and, and a big band. Oh my goodness. And James was re real young then. I mean, James was only probably late 20s. Was he the beast then that he is now? James Morrison was always, a, a, you know, a bit of a uh, boyhood, boyhood hero of mine. And so that was a bit of a, a turning point uh, for me, having seen James. And, and then from there, really, the next point where I heard other playing was I... I auditioned for the, the State Youth Orchestra and I got accepted into that when I was about 11 and uh, and um, 
then suddenly I was exposed to orchestral repertoire. And All on B flat trumpet. Still on B flat trumpet, yeah. yeah. Everything, first piece I remember playing distinctly, I remember it was uh, Capriccio Italian and Tchaikovsky. <laughs> well, what a brutal introduction to a trumpet transposition. That's right, right. I, yeah. And you know, you had to like think fast and luckily I had a little bit of an idea of what transposition was because I'd done some uh, examination things that required transposition. But uh, I remember I was a lot younger than the other kids, and so I was. Uh, they were all sort of teenagers, and I was sort of eleven. So mm -hmm. it was a. Uh, yeah, everyone seemed to be a lot bigger and older, and better than I was. And is and the solo in there a trumpet or e trumpet? I can't remember. It's it's all a trumpet. Is that right? That's the one. Bum bum da 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 da. Is that Capriccio Italian? Yeah, that I was be bum bum bum. That's trumpet in E. Yeah. Ba right. It was trumpet right. E transposition first right. up. That's right. Yep. E tra that's I had to pause and think about that because that makes that solo uh, that much more difficult, especially on B flat trumpet. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so they were the first notes. I'm sure I got it wrong, but anyway, that's what youth orchestras are all about. And uh, yeah, and then it was really probably uh, only through hearing other kids. At that sort of age, and then I think I I did get a few recordings. I got a recording of uh, off Mr. Hardington. I got a recording of Rolf Quink playing the Hormel Concerto and the Haydn. Right. Is a great you know East German trumpet mm -hmm. soloist. I think from sort of the 60s or 50s. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people would know, uh, especially uh, Europeans would know Rolf Quink. Um, and maybe I had, and then maybe. You know, early on, I might have had a Maynard Ferguson tape or something like that, because he's also been another massive hero of mine over the years. There's a. This was not an interview I did, but one that I had heard, and the, the interviewer said, "You know, uh, we all have this uh, Maynard Ferguson phase, and and most of us eventually grow out of it." And I <laughs> and I think about that. It's like I, I remember I literally had twenty, at least twenty albums yeah. of Maynard early on. Yeah. Uh, but to think, you know, of course, you want to you want to be able to experience and enjoy everybody and whatever gets you fired up, yeah, and excited about playing the trumpet and that for me that's what it was. But I was then grateful I got to college and traded my one of my uh, albums for a Doc Severinsen album, and then of course you know then the whole you know, the whole trumpet player world changes. That's right. So I have a question, uh, a big one. You're, you're talking about how you started and how young you were. Was that the norm? Is that still the norm in Australia to, to start students that young in music? I think um, I was a little bit different to most in that um, with the amount I did at such a young age, uh, I think you're introduced usually to brass instruments at really any age in Australia. There's no hard and fast thing. I, I usually want people to have all their teeth. Right, and that's one of my th thoughts on this is, you know, you're okay until you lose your, your middle, top, or bottom Right, teeth. and also, or if you're you know, going to plan to have braces. You know, it's a tough thing for kids to go through, mm -hmm. uh, especially if they've gotten so far. And then, you know, um, I'd almost prefer them to just wait it out and, and have a year off and then come back to it uh, than mm -hmm. sort of battle through it. For right. a lot of them, but I mean, I haven't done a lot of teaching of of uh, 
sort of younger players. So mm-hmm. I'm possibly not the not the expert when it comes to that. But um, you know, I'm certainly not shy of teaching them. I just uh, I just haven't done a lot of it. I've te- tended to teach a lot of university and mm-hmm. postgraduate students. Um, and uh, yeah, so you know. I really think we've kind of barely scratched the surface on a lot of things. And I don't want to give everything away in one interview. So this will give me an excuse to come to Australia for one reason or another, either for the academy or something else. Um, But I have a couple other questions before uh, we wrap up here. Uh, I know uh, and I sense your passion for early music. Well, you've just finished a second book, is that right? Yeah, I mean, early music. There's uh, well, there's yeah, there's a second book. First book was sort of a method book uh, and a great introduction for people to who've been, you know, good players who want to just approach the baroque trumpet for the first time. Mm-hmm. That's called the natural trumpet and other related instruments. And the second book is a book that uh, David Hickman's published, Hickman Music. Um, and it's the baroque trumpet revival. Now, it's more of a sort of a well, I guess it's more of a text. It's a mm-hmm. It's got sort of the accounts of uh, what happened, everything from sort of the Mendelssohn-led Bach revival of the 1830s and all the sort of rediscovery of Clarino playing because really by that stage in the 1830s, no one had done it for 100 years, more or less, or at least 80 years. And so a lot of that tradition and art had been lost and they really didn't know what to do with the instruments or, you know, they experimented with, saxophones on the high parts of Bach and clarinets on the high parts of Bach, even corners. I just died a little bit inside. Yeah, I know. This is, <laughs> we had, this is a journey we, we, had to, uh, we had to go on to, to come out the other side for all the better for it. So, uh, and then, yeah, all the, uh, those valved Bach trumpets that uh, came through the, the turn of the century into the 20th century and then... Um, you know all the various and the piccolo, the rise of the piccolo trumpet, and then eventually we get to the 1950s and early 60s with the proper revival, okay. uh, and Walter Holy and Michael Laird, Ed Tarr, Don Smithers, these kind of real pioneers, and um, and this book I've I've managed to interview pretty much all of the original pioneers of the baroque trumpet, in, in so it's there in their own words, and sharing their own experiences. And, uh, you know, a lot of the times the information's great and the stories are great, but, you know, just hearing it, and for me, it's, it tickles me because, you know, I've become good friends with a lot of them and I've mm-hmm. performed with most of them. And so I really hear their voices come through the pages on, on the words, wow. uh, sorry, the words uh, on, the, on the page. And, uh, you know, some of it's quite humorous as well to hear how things all unfolded back in the day, as it were. And... Um, so I think that we interviewed about 20 players all, all, all in all, and uh, so it's a really you know, good source and resource for people, you know, and there's a lot of you know, discussion around uh, who's doing what where and you know, different makers of different instruments. And, you know, this, it's, a, it's over 300 pages and uh, lots and lots of pictures. And Both books available through Hickman? Uh, one book's available through Kookaburra Music, that's the Natural Trumpet, the Method book, and actually that's uh, the second edition is, is going to be coming out early in the new year, so that's going to be, uh, for those of you who've already got the book and want a, an updated, better edition, uh, that's going to be there, and for those of you who haven't got the Method book, that's kookaburramusic.com, and 
the, uh, the Baroque trumpet revival uh, is available through Hickman Music. Okay. Now, you, earlier before we started the interview, you referenced uh, recording. Oh yeah, we just, uh, before we've started the tour for Sound the Trumpets, I was just in Kentucky, uh, in a little place, a little tiny town called Loretto, Kentucky, <laughs> and they have a lovely convent there with a beautiful, beautiful church, and it's an incredible acoustic, uh, and we've uh, performed there before uh, with various groups, and uh, I remembered mentioning to someone, well, it'd be great to make a recording here, and so there's a new ensemble uh, starting just now, it's called uh, uh, Sinaitis Clarisma, and uh, it's uh, taking trumpet players from all over, really, and uh, all Baroque trumpet players and timpani, and we've recorded uh, a whole bunch of works in this venue, and uh, hopefully the album will come out before too long, maybe by the end of the year, mm -hmm. and uh, so keep a keep an eye out for that, but it should be a really good album. And uh, Yeah, I, I can see where, why Norrington might go down that path, uh, you know, with Mahler's sort of preoccupation with Beethoven mm. and trying to, mm -hmm. you know, live up to his, his own sort of self-prescribed <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. kind of shadow that he thought he lived in of the great man and all that sort of stuff. But, yeah, it's, uh, once again, it's a fairly subjective thing, isn't it? I mean, when conductors kind of, impose themselves to, to oh because they know there's a little callback there yeah there, there, <laughs> there they you go <laughs> I mean I this I mean in my experience I mean I've been at the other end of that where we had uh, one particular Italian conductor who shall remain nameless who decided Beethoven would be best Beethoven five would be best performed with 12, 12 double basses double wins and you know I'm like no well von Carrion did that in 1966 and it wasn't good then, and it's <laughs> probably not going to be good now. But yeah, I was subjected to that, so I've seen it. So I've seen both extremes, and I know which one I prefer. Yeah, John, um, I've really enjoyed spending this time chatting with you, and uh, thank you for being willing to share uh, with us. I'm truly in, intrigued about the uh, Trumpet Academy, and of course, I'll make sure that I put links. Uh, along with this podcast, I'll, I'll find those and uh, include everything uh, for those people that might be interested. And who knows, you may either have to expand or your wait list might grow to who knows how long. But uh, thank you so much for sharing today. I appreciate it. Larry, it's been an absolute pleasure and you're always welcome to come down under and we'll take good care of you and, and any of your listeners that want to join us. Terrific. Thanks again. Thank you again for listening to today's interview. I hope you enjoyed your time here, and please come back for more interviews. Be sure to share the news of this podcast with friends and colleagues, and give me a rating on whatever platform you get your podcast from. Thanks again to Messina Covers for co-sponsoring this podcast. Don't forget that you too can be a supporter. Check out how at www.patreon.com slash studiohfl. And one more reminder that you can sign up to receive news via email regarding new episodes, merchandise, and more by going to palmusic.net and clicking on the subscribe to newsletter link. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you come back for more great interviews.